Hey, good morning, Lincoln. How you doing out there today? Thank you for tuning in to KZUM. This is How's It Growing, your weekly gardening connection brought to you only at your favorite radio station. That is KZUM. Lincoln, thanks for tuning in today. We will be your gardening connection. Today, I'm connecting with Jason, the bird nerd from Spring Creek Prairie Audubon. Looking forward to chatting with Jason here. He's going to be calling it about eh, around five minutes. So looking forward to that conversation. So stay tuned for that. All about birds, you bird nerds out there. And if you're not a bird nerd, well, you should be. Hey, folks. Uh, yeah, we, man, we actually got rain in the last week, right? And I was uh, follow Ken Dewey, a former climatologist at UNL. He's an uh, adjunct professor now. But anyway, follow him on Facebook. And he, uh, I think he said like at his place, he got like an inch 20 in the last three little rains, whatever. And that's more rain than we've had at any month uh, all year so far, right? So, wow. Uh, the drought lingers, and uh, it is what it is, right? So I didn't even look ahead. I should have looked ahead to see the seven-day if there's any chances. I just don't want to look at the seven-day and see three, three 101-degree days in a row. They're coming, right? All right, kick back for an hour of armchair gardening as we celebrate Nebraska Wildflower Week, that's right, the first full week in June is Nebraska Wildflower Week, so get out there and plant some wildflowers, view some wildflowers, plan on going on a hike. Um, we're planning on going on a hike uh, right after the show. Uh, my cohort, uh, Brad Kindler, and I are going to be driving all the way to Shadron, so we're looking forward. First, got to stop by in North Platte. Then we're going to take Highway 83 straight north of North Platte. If you've ever been on that road, it's a nice road, and we'll take that to connect up to Highway 2 and then bring it on up to the end of the long route to Shadron, so uh, up to Pine Ridge Country. And then uh, on uh, Friday, heading down to Scott's Bluff. Uh, looking forward to that. And images I'm seeing from Facebook friends in Nebraska through the lands, places like that, man, they've been getting more rain than us, which is just unheard of for western Nebraska. So... Things look lush and green. Looking to forward to celebrating Wildflower Week out in the panhandle. Wish you could join us. It's going to be a good time. And actually, three of the days that we're going to be out there, there's chances of rain, like 50 to 60%. So we might get rained out of the whole deal. We'll see. But it is what it is. We'll take it. And uh, speaking of Nebraska Wildflower Week, I want to put a spotlight on one of my favorite groups of wildflowers. And it, uh, if you don't have any in your yard, well, you need to put them on your wish list. And that's the penstemons, right? The beard tongues, they're also called. I guess somebody thought it looked like uh, uh, the flower looked like a, a, like a, a fuzzy tongue, if you will, or a bearded tongue. <laughs> uh, but penstemon is kind of the, the name that uh, everybody kind of recognizes. And... Oh, I think there's over 100 species native in the United States. It's an endemic species to the United States. doesn't get anywhere on any other uh, continent. But here in Nebraska, oh, I don't know. I, I should have looked it up. I think we have something like eight species, something like that. And, um, and there's a number of other regionally native species that do really great in the garden. But right now, the penstemons are doing their thing. They are in bloom. They own June. June is Penstemon Month, and it being Wildflower Week, I just wanted to give a spotlight on those a little bit. It uh, put on your wish list, one of the easiest to grow, and it was actually, there was a named cultivar in that group called Husker Red Penstemon. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but that is a cultivar of the Smooth Penstemon, um, also called Foxglove Penstemon, because somebody thought the flower kind of looks like a foxglove. But anyway, Husker Red, you might say, well, I don't want that because it's a cultivar. Well, 
Dale Lindgren, I, a, a plant breeder based out in North Platte, retired now, but he's the one who introduced that plant. And it came from a call from a lady that had one growing in her backyard that just kind of showed up wild. And uh, in other words, it wasn't produced in some lab. It's not some hybrid. It's basically the only difference is it had more reddish foliage, and he had not seen that before. And hence the name Husker Red. The flower's not red, but anyway... I don't know about the name, but it is what it is. All I know is it's just as good as a straight-up species, but the straight-up species, the foxglove penstemon, has more, you know, shiny green leaves rather than the reddish leaves, so, but I think it's cool in its own right. And what I like about the foxglove penstemon is it it uh, will tolerate a lot of shade, probably, if so if you're sitting on, well, I, I, I want to grow penstemons, but do they take full sun? They certainly prefer it. But boy, this they, that baby will grow in part shade, half day of shade, and, and do just fine, so... Put that on your wish list if you don't have it. The bumblebees love it. Uh, other pollinating insects love it too, but the bumbles just uh, really gravitate because they're tubular flowers and they can crawl inside and uh, pollinate the plant while they're, they're seeking that nectar, if you will, right? But yeah, foxglove penstemon, check it out. If you're not familiar with it, Google it and see what you think. I think it's a nice penstemon. There's a couple, of, uh, a couple, three others I want to mention if we have time here. One is the hairy penstemon. Hairy penstemon, it's a hairy little fellow. It has little fuzzy stems and fuzzy leaves. It's got kind of got hair. I mean, you have to get close to the plant to really notice the hairs, but uh, the hairs help hold in moisture. But that is more of an eastern species, kind of eastern United States, like, uh, oh, Indiana, Pennsylvania, places like that. And But it does really well here in Nebraska, easy to grow, very dependable penstemon uh, year after year. And if you're lucky enough, you might get it to seed around, as does the foxglove penstemon. Sometimes seeding around too much for people, they're like, oh, it, it's all over the place. Well, that's because you had open ground. If you have open ground, it's going to take advantage of that. But if you have a garden packed with plants, you just can maybe get one here and there. But anyway, hairy penstemon, uh, beautiful tubular flower that's kind of two-toned. It's kind of, uh, oh, a darkish, uh, kind of a purple purple tube and then uh, with a white lip or a, a pale pale purple lip if you will so it's kind of two-toned really cool attractive plant doesn't get very tall maybe 18 inches more than likely something like 15 and then there's a couple of others one is calico penstemon and calico is native to places like minnesota and further east kind of a great lakes type species and i tell you what it does well here too and it's another one that'll tolerate part shade and so telling you about this because not all of us have wall-to-wall sunshine to grow these desert-type uh, penstemons, which we will see out in western Nebraska. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the narrow-leaf penstemon out there. Man, if you're not familiar with that one and you have a chance, look it up right now. Pull out your phone and Google narrow-leaf penstemon or penstemon angustifolia. It is one of my faves. It's uh probably only around six inches high, 12 in a good year. Maybe they got up to 12 this year with all the rain they've had out west. But man, what a beautiful, uh, almost uh, azure blue color to it and uh, kind of two-toned. And, and it'll be kind of pink in bud, so you get both pink and blue on a flower spike. It doesn't like eastern Nebraska. That's why I mentioned the calico, the foxglove, and the hairy. Those are easy for you to grow in the garden. If you want to grow narrowly penstemon, boy, you better be making what we call a xeric or rock garden type condition for it. And that isn't hard to do. And if we have time, I'll get to that. All right. So you got narrow leaf 
And then another one we're going to see out west that, uh, again, if you're not familiar with Google Images, you go, oh, baby. This one we'll spot at uh, Scotts Bluff Monument. I know I've seen it there. It's called Sawseeple Penstemon. And uh, my, oh, my, what a beautiful bird. That one, I don't know if you, you know, finding it in the trade is uh, slim to none. But if you Google it like I did, I found there's a, oh, it's called Beth Chattos Plants and Gardens. And that's, uh, you know, in other words, you're going to have to order it mail order. And uh, not everybody's cup of tea ordering plants in mail order. I realize that. And it's uh, expensive with shipping. So it's one of those plants there we appreciate seeing in nature because humans aren't going to be able to duplicate it in the garden. So that's why we preserve things, right? So the saw sepal, the narrowly penstemon, and there's another one called, oh, it's kind of a boring name, called pale penstemon that you will see out west. And that is an awesome plant as well. So looking forward to seeing the penstemons out west. It's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, and then here in the east, the star of the show is one called Cobia or Cobea penstemon. And that one you'll see in places like, uh, I've seen it down at Rock Creek Station in the Fairbury area. So it's more south cent- or southeastern Nebraska, uh, kind of along Kansas border and, and rocky outcroppings and things like that. But spotlight on the penstemons this week's plants of the week we'll call it with a shout out to nebraska wildflower week oh right we got a caller on the line and i believe this is the bird nerd himself jason how are you doing i'm good how are you bob pretty good can you hear me okay kid i can and you were talking about one of my favorites cobia penstemon yeah okay so um you know first of all i I was going to look up why did they come up with the name cobia right it's like uh couldn't we come up with a better name i don't even know where the name (laughs) comes from to be honest with you jason i don't know if you've gone i'm a plant nerd so i'll look things like that up just to and it helps me remember the why but do you happen to have that penstemon at uh, spring creek we do actually in our sort of plants for birds garden we've got some blooming right now too cool. Oh, so it was planted, meaning it wasn't just remnant in the prairie or what? As far as I know, it's on our species list, so we should have them. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm pretty sure that you can find them around. That one and shell leaf penstemon both bloom outside of the little demo garden. Uh-huh. Uh, but we have replanted that since some construction of the new uh, sidewalk uh, nice. coming down to the building. Nice. Um, we wanted to make sure those were there for people to see. So. It is the, uh, from what I remember, I think it's the largest flower of any of the penstemon species. Uh, there's one in New Mexico called penstemon palmeri. I remember I tried to grow here, and boy, it, it did great that year it bloomed, and then it never came back the following spring. And I think our, you know, who knows, uh, winter wetness, heavier soils, whatever the case may be, those those desert species, those uh, xeric species like that, are a little tougher to get the going for the gardener, but cobia is one that I think performs pretty darn admirably in the garden. And, and you know, pensamins in general are short-lived, but you just, you have to let them seed around and create gardening conditions where they want to seed around, i.e. mulch with gravel, not with wood chips, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. Well, well, Jason, uh, the bird nerd, is joining me today. Jason from Screen Creek Prairie Audubon. Thank you so much, Jason, for taking the time. Are you guys having a busy spring? Yeah, pretty much. Um, our uh, school field trips just finished up with school wrapping up, and we are getting ready for summer camp programming and with Wildflower Week this week, and we've got Pollinator Week in a couple weeks. Yeah. And 
bird surveys and of course as you mentioned everything is starting to bloom and uh grasses are coming up and uh, it's looking pretty good out here even in the drought that we've got yeah that was going to be my next question i think people think well i don't want to go out there it's so dry it's not going to look good well the prairie kind of shrugged his shoulders and said we got this right are you seeing can you tell it's a drought year compared to let's say we had good moisture in in april and may and now here it is June. Obviously, there's some differences, but what would you say is noticeable? Is it a height thing, or is it some things bloom better than others, or what? A little bit of all of that. So you definitely can tell. Um, I think part of it is over the past year and a half with the drought, we haven't been able to pull off a burn. We got one off this spring, but none last year. Mm. And that just causes some of those cool season grasses, or um, no, let me correct that, though the later, the warm season grasses that come up later, mm. um, we don't get as many of them and as tall. So like the big blue stem Indian grasses stuff really come in that year right after a burn. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of our prairie areas right now are a little, they, they look a little thinner, I mm. would say. Mm-hmm. But once you get in them, right, it's not as tall, the diversity is still there. There's lots of things there. Um, I'm finding that things will bloom um, but a little shorter time, it mm-hmm. seems, not as long mm-hmm. as maybe they usually would on a wetter year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a few, a little sparser, but there's still some really beautiful stuff to see. Um, I actually kind of like in one area where it was grazed last year and it hasn't grown over. It's really easy to walk in and it's great to find things. You know, I found some, is it Timpsilla, the prairie turnip the other day blooming oh, wow. last year. So that was really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty rare bird, uh, and and I remember hiking there with you one year, and we found ground plum, which I didn't know was there, and that's a a cool uh, short little little stout prairie plant, and you know, and, and it's again ground plum, folks. You you know, good luck finding it in the trade, and that's why places like Spring Creek Prairie Audubon are so important for preservation, is because. Humans aren't going to duplicate ground plum. We're not going to find it around anymore. We've, we've plowed most of the prairie up. Uh, One-tenth of one percent is remaining. And I think 600 of those acres are out at Spring Creek Prairie Audubon, which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen that, too, in the garden uh, where, you know, if people are planting natives, and they should be, um, you know, you don't have to baby those natives, which is great. Well, what about a drought year, Bob? Well, yeah, you, you don't have to water. The plants will be fine. They might not bloom as long, uh, you know. Maybe it says, "Dude, I'm getting it done in a week." You know, I'm good, and uh, <laughs> I'm after producing seed. I'm not after pleasing you humans, and so, yeah, it's more fleeting, and uh, like you say, not as tall. You know, and to us humans, maybe a little disappointing that well, last year I swear it bloomed for three weeks, right? And so, <clears throat> but for me, I'm not keeping track. I'm not keeping count, and to say, well. I, I recorded it from blooming from June 3rd to June 21st last year, and this year it only bloomed from June 3rd to June 10th. Yada, yada, yada. Who cares? Right. Yeah, what's important is the plants that's there, and they will be back when the rains return because they're still there. But the one thing you mentioned, Jason, is, uh, okay, so uh, we got uh, Nebraska Wildflower Week. What is What event do you have taking place to celebrate Nebraska Wildflower Week? This week, we're just inviting people out for a stroll, especially mornings, or don't forget our trails are open sunrise to sunset, so a good time when it's, you know, hot midday to uh, come out is actually a lot of those plants that will bloom again, right? They'll open up right before uh, the mm-hmm. sun goes down. 
come out for a sunset stroll when it gets a little cooler or come out before it gets hot in the morning. And a lot of those things, I'm, I'm thinking of the, what did I just see, the sun drops, the little primroses. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. As well. And uh, the uh, thank flower, like, closes up during the middle of the day. The spider wart closes up during mm-hmm, the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. But if you're out early morning or right before the sun goes down, a lot of those will be opening up again, and it's a nice time for that. So no specific uh, events going on this week other than just inviting people out and reminding them that the trails are open sunrise to sunset, and it's a great time to see wildflowers and the uh, bugs and the birds that need them. So. That's great. And then what about uh, Nebraska Pollinator Week? Is there a specific event tied to that? That one we're doing something um, called kind of a do-it-yourself, a DIY week, where each day we're going to have some kids and family activities, one an indoor one that they can do in our visitor center, and then an outdoor idea. That way if parents are coming out, they can learn a bit about pollinators and the importance but also, like, have a little activity for kids and families to do. So nothing specific, like you have to be on a certain day. Mm-hmm. But if you're visiting, you can uh, pick those up or do those activities while you're here. Um, there'll also be a QR code you can scan so that if it's during off hours when the building isn't open, you can still get access to some of those activities. Yeah, and honestly, I didn't, I didn't have time to hear, and I'm not going to try to look it up while we're chatting, but I, the National Pollinator Week, I want to say, is like June in the 20s, like something around... Yeah, it starts that 19th through okay. the 25th. 19th through the 25th, and, I'm, and I imagine there's a number of other things taking place, folks, uh, that, to celebrate uh, Pollinator Week, which is a cool thing, and, and I'm curious, Jason, uh, you know... At my place, okay, we got flowers and stuff. It seems like I see less bees. Um, you had talked about a bird survey, and I know we've been involved with uh, a bio blitz out there, a little mini bio blitz with you once in the past. Do you guys hold any sort of uh, bio blitzes or planning any like that where where you can get uh, our listeners to contribute and help out? And, and, uh, and, and then I want that to lead into that bird survey and, and talk about that. Yeah. So for Pollinator Week, one of the things we're encouraging people to do is we have projects set up on iNaturalist already. So we're not holding a specific bio blitz this mm-hmm. year. But what we're doing is, is that way that whole week, depending on when it's good for the visitor, you can just, if you take and use iNaturalist to get any picture of a pollinator or bees, it goes into our project. You don't even have to know. It just knows the location and Uh the photo if it's of a certain species and then it goes on our list so it helps us keep track of like what's being seen how many um and it's a great and easy way for people to contribute to that community science because we can't see and count at all so that's cool and uh, i'm glad you mentioned iNaturalist and i know uh uh, talking with my cohort uh toby um you know he knows he knows you, and he knows uh, that you use it a lot, and not only at Spring Creek Prairie, but you also use it at your own home landscape because you planted a lot of natives. And, and I'm curious, uh, do you have, like, any sort of uh, in your mind, okay, I started planting these a certain year, or maybe I've, you've always had it, but have you seen an increase in, uh, in, in, I guess, beneficial insect activity as a result of continuing to plant native plants at your own home landscape? Definitely. Um, one of the ways I know is, so I participate with iNaturalist in the City Nature Challenge every year at the end of April and early May. And I can tell you, and it took, and I think this goes, you could probably agree, Bob, but um, 
it's usually about the third year of native planting, I feel like, mm-hmm. where it really kind of, things have kind of, not only have they kind of uh, established themselves, but I feel like they are working in the ecology that you're creating in the yard, like whatever your goals are, right? Um, and so that third year was just last year for me, and I really noticed both birds around and insects I had never seen using these little sort of, I call them refugia I've created in the backyard, so I don't have it all like prairie. I've got a little walking trail that I mow through it, but that means there's little circles and ovals and weird shapes of native plants all you know, growing at different heights and with each other. And in those, I mean, not to mention mammals too, like the rabbits and the possums and woodchucks have loved it, which I know some people don't want it. <laughs> but just the insect pile, you know, that I have found using iNaturalist mm-hmm. that I never expected to see has really been like very cool. And definitely I've been in the little house for five years. So like from when I started to now, like definitely at least more diverse. I wouldn't say numbers are up because I think numbers of most things are down, especially mm-hmm. in a drought there. It's going to be a little, you know, not as many overall, mm-hmm. but I think the types of them I'm seeing is definitely uh, greater. That's cool, and I'm, I'm curious if you have a, a number in your head, like going, man, I'm like a so-called life list for insects. <laughs> you know, of course, I know being the bird nerd, uh, we keep life lists for birds, uh, and folks, all that is is kind of your own personal list of, of bird species you have seen in your lifetime, right? And uh, some mm-hmm. people really, you know, especially serious birders, uh, that list is, is sacred to them. And, I, and the, you know, I haven't done a good job keeping it up since because I know I took uh, ornithology with Dr. Johnsgaard back in the day and we had to keep a life list during that semester. And I know, if I remember right off the top of my head, it was like 110 species that we saw in that one semester. And I know I'm never going to duplicate that in one year, right? But, uh, but still, I have that, that, you know, kind of that uh, unofficial life list in my brain. So when I see something new, uh, like, for example, I don't think during that semester we had seen a scarlet tanager or an indigo bunting. Well, I have since, right? So I can add it to my life list. But I'm curious, with you, have you seen, do you keep track of the numbers of insects? Like, uh, you know, is it the 30s or is it, you know, teens or any idea at all? I don't keep a list specifically. I could look up the ones that I've at least gotten pictures of in iNaturalist and Uh see how many there are. I think just because the total number, right, of invertebrates, especially just insects, is so much bigger than the amount of birds that we have, right, as you go (laughs) up the food pyramid or web like right it, 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 the numbers change there's it's just so overwhelming that i don't keep a list <laughs> what i try to do though is, is as i'm learning the new you know bug or whatever it is 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 it beneficial is someone eating it or is it eating something else mm-hmm. is it using this plant because it needs to lay its eggs on it right and it's uh larva it's the only plant they'll eat like that information to me is extremely interesting and important because it helps me then decide if I'm going to add any plants, like who's it beneficial for? Like, is it going to help this bug so that, you know, one of my favorite birds that wants to eat that bug, you know, will like enjoy it, right? That's, to me, that's the interesting connection, less on numbers because I can't imagine the size of a list. 
I could have if I started doing bugs because there's a lot. Yeah, exactly. I'm just, it maybe was kind of a, a, a shout out to you to say, you know, that's another list you could try to do. And uh, true. Yeah, it, it, it just depends. Again, you're the, you're the bird nerd, I don't not the need bug nerd. Right. Bob, you don't have more Right. You're not the bug nerd. You stick with birds and call it, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but still, it's always fun. That's a beautiful thing of the natural world, folks. It's lifelong learning, and, uh, you know, however long you want to take it and, and do it. All right, uh, Jason, I'm coming up at the bottom of the hour. I think there was a good time to take a break because, uh, and I'm going to keep you on the line, and we'll do some messages from KZUM here. It's going to take several minutes, but when we come back, um, I want to talk about that. The, you had mentioned uh, you, you guys were undergoing bird surveys out at uh, Wichisca, mm-hmm. right? So let's uh, let's talk about those surveys and what that all involves, and let and I want to find out if uh, if our listeners can get involved anyway in that. So you stick around, and I'll bring you back here in just a few minutes. Alrighty, sir. Sounds good. All right, thanks, Jason. All right, that is Jason, the bird nerd, Saint Sauveur from Spring Creek Prairie Audubon. I probably trashed your last name, Jason. Sorry, you know, but I'll just stick to bird nerd and call it good. All right, folks, I'll be back right after this. Keep it right there. This is KZUM Lincoln, and how's it growing? All right, welcome back. It's eleven thirty-four. Thank you for tuning in to KZUM. Thank you for tuning in to How's It Growing, your weekly gardening connection, connecting with Jason, the bird nerd, Spring Creek Prairie Audubon Center. Thanks again, Jason. Thanks for for, uh, being patient there. Knowing you, you were probably getting stuff done while (laughs) I was listening to those messages. But yeah, I appreciate your time, Jason, so much. And you know, and and uh, you had mentioned there's some some bird surveys going on out at Spring Creek Prairie Audubon. So, what exactly does that mean, and and uh, when did when did that start? Yeah, so we've been doing them for years, but it's not every year. Um, and there's a couple of different types. So, we are doing our summer breeding bird surveys, um, and that's to look at is our management right. So, we have a priority bird list specific grassland birds that we are managing for to keep the habitat healthy for that they have a place to go since uh, you know big extent grasslands are pretty hard to find yeah um, things like bobolinks grasshopper sparrows meadowlark things that need a like big open area of mm. you know tall grass prairie um, so we have to survey for those along some transects through the prairie just to see if our management is working how are the numbers? Um, and then overall, that data also helps, you know, not just here at Spring Creek, but like landscape-wide and nationwide on how numbers are on a lot of these species of birds as well. So we do that from uh, now in uh, most of June through mid-July. We try to do a couple of rounds of surveys early, early mornings um, on a lot of those species to make sure our management is doing what we hope it's doing, basically. Yeah, so I'm curious how you do that. Does that, you know, so you're tr- covering every square inch of the prairie, or how do you, how, that's a challenging yeah. task, right? How do you do that? It's a good question. You know, there's, there's a couple of different ways. So ours are set up. We have long ago, there were, um, uh, Audubon worked with the uh, Missouri River Bird Observatory and set up seven transects here, I believe. And it kind of are, a transect is just a line and it, I believe, goes to 50 meters on either side of the line, and you walk that in the middle, and then you just try to note, um, and we use something called Field Maps. It's an app that works through uh, GIS online um, on our phones, and you just tap the map where you're at and where you hear or see a bird, and then you quick type in some information about the bird, and then you keep going. So we do that and pretty much 
record all the birds we hear or see um, as we walk through these transects. So it's not the whole area. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it helps extrapolate like kind of averages, presence, absence of what birds are here. Um, and if they're singing, there's a good chance, right? That tells you that it's at least a male that is probably there guarding territory or has a female on a nest near within those times. That's why we do it in uh, June and July, because a little earlier, it could be a migrant bird moving through. Uh Um, After July, they're pretty quiet and nesting is kind of done. So it's specifically those times. The other type of survey is a point count survey, and these are done a lot more in like forested areas of the country, but there's a random amount of points you go to and you survey there and then you just figure out then an average we have this much property and we survey at these points i see kind of average what year because you could never survey like the whole property right yeah that's what i was starting to think of i was like man how do you do that and so you're saying that 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 50 foot transit line um it's kind of determined that okay if there's if there's a nesting bird within I suppose that's what twenty-five feet on either side of you, or is it fifty feet on either side of you with that for that I think line? It's fifty meters. On oh, fifty side. meters on either side. Yeah. yeah. In other words, is that kind of determined? Because well, if there's a bird nesting within that fifty meters, chances are they're going to want to mess with you and uh, you know defend their territory, or at least get startled away from their nest so you can view it. Or is it, or is it like, uh, well, can a bird sit tight? Right, and you just walk right past it. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Pretty much, they're just doing what they're doing. We just walk right through, and that's why we stay on the line. Mm. We actually aren't nest surveying. That's a totally different kind of survey to Mm. go back and actually look. Something you would do later in the season to add to this data is then what's called a vegetation survey. So we also would then add in our GIS mapping, like what management have we done? Has this area been burned in the past year or the past three years? Has there been grazing on it? What vegetation is here? That lets us know, for example, if we look on the map later at our bird data and all the bobolinks are over in McConnell Meadow and none are anywhere else, mm. what's going on over there that they like, right? So it's like, it lets us know what management because they're very different. Uh, Henslow sparrows are extremely, uh, sparrows are very picky. Mm. They need like three to five years of thatch, so they don't like areas that are recently burned. Uh. Whereas meadowlarks like the space on the ground a bit, uh. um, so they like it a little bit more grazed and not super thick and tall so it kind of just depends on the bird um here because we want to have all of those and there's not a lot of grasslands left we're trying to have parcels or patches of all of that so that's where it gets tricky right you don't want to have the sort of a monochrome looking exactly the same prairie we want areas that are slightly grazed some that have been burned in the past two or three years and then some that are rested where we haven't done anything on it for you know quite a few years I see. I see. Yeah, it's nice to diversify the different management practices, but also the you know creating the different habitats for specific birds. That's cool. Yeah, because I remember reading. Oh, the bobolink is one of my faves, and and uh, I think I, I can't remember what I read in the past. It's been a long time since I took ornithology, but it seems to me they needed something like like nine acres or twelve acres. If they don't have it, they're probably not going to nest. Is that kind of? Yeah, it's pretty big. I think they're one of the ones. So like. People will ask me a lot of times, like, or notice that they don't see as many meadowlarks right in Lincoln anymore. There's still a few you can find, like, at Holmes Lake or Marsh Wren, some of the larger parks that have some, you know, wild prairie to them. Yeah. 
But as you get to bobolink and grasshopper sparrow, they need a good 20, 25, sometimes 30 or more Dang. acres wow. before they'll nest. They might stop and sing and see, uh-huh. but what they don't want is, we don't even think about this as humans, but those tree edges that we create, mm-hmm. that's exactly where a bobcat would lay in the shade or a hawk would be perched up, and they don't want those near their nest. Uh-huh. So they want wide open grassland with a lot less tree edges so that they need that big, wide open, you know, 25, 30 acres or more. Yeah, that way they can keep their eye in the sky rather than worrying about something hiding from them in the trees, right? Right. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, and they're they're, they're a show-off. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that so the bobolink, I think I've observed them like literally like flying straight up, like vertical. Was that like their mating dance? I can't remember what it was. Correct me on that. Yeah, no, they... They do a thing called larking. They're one of the birds that will circle a little bit, and they sing their song. And it's pretty long for a bird song, and he'll keep circling a lot of times above the territory, especially if there is a female down there that he's showing off to. That's Um, funny. We've got a couple right in. There's a grassland edge area right on the north west side of our parking lot here at Spring Creek. And there's been a couple of males showing off right there every day. So it's been pretty fun to watch. Oh, man, that is fun to watch. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and that was going to be another question. It's like, okay, so the, 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 the singing that's going on, you know, it's, it's pretty silent in the wintertime. Then spring comes around and everybody's like, oh, it's spring. The birds are singing. I wonder, oh, I'm curious for you, what is that, that song that you hear in the spring that says, all right, spring has definitely arrived now versus... Oh, it's right around the corner. You know, I'm thinking of like the Almighty American Robin, right? We, you know, is usually one of the first to be singing. But, but is there a particular bird that you say, okay, all those others fine, but when I hear this one, it's spring to me. What, what does that bird do it for you? Yeah, there's one that comes to mind, and I think a lot of people use this as a real harbinger of spring. It's sort of the first one in this area of the country that you'll hear really early, almost as spring arrives. Um, which is red-winged blackbird male yeah. singing. Yeah, right? They, boy, you know if they're singing in on territory, it's only a week or two away to, like, full spring. Um, nice. And then it's just waves after that. It's kind of um, Kevin Pogue, you know, 25 years out here at Spring Creek. He and I are always talking about how every week since then, it's been who else is arriving, what other right. bird song should be here next week, right? Uh-huh. then you'll get know yellow warblers and then you'll get willow flycatchers and then you get the grasshopper sparrows and uh, the henslow sparrows are a little late there were a few things late and i Mm. think that's just drought right timing of like our plum tickets weren't even leafing out or blooming until a good week to 10 days later than they usually do um that's our catbirds and uh, Uh crashers who like to hide in those we're a little late this year Mm -hmm. Um, they seem to be able to time you know they probably actually are timing it on bugs because that's what they want to eat but um, it seems to go with that phenology of when the plants are blooming, too. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I have a brown thrasher that uh, has been nesting in, uh, up where I work on UNLE's campus, right? It borders Dead Man's Run, so there's trees and a creek and all this and that, and you could pretty much set your watch to it when that fellow would show up every spring. And, like, for me, I was like, okay, spring has definitely arrived, right? And it's usually it just like clockwork. I'm... I bring all the plants back to the greenhouse and I'm, I'm maybe, you know, I guess organizing them, getting them ready. It, it feels like May 3rd, I want to say, something like that. Or, 
you know, late April, early May, and uh, oh, there you are. Okay, and then I, I should have just started recording it because, like you said, I'm like, where is he this year? Um, and I started getting like concerned. It's like, okay, um, you know, maybe the uh, the thread has finally been broken, right? And this bird is no longer with us. But 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 say that thrasher has been nesting in that location. Um, it's because it probably hasn't been the same bird every year, right? Und- undoubtedly, because I think I've been hearing it for the last what? I've been there 20 years. Come on, man, Bob, it's not the same bird, <laughs> right? But but the but the young ones know it's kind of ingrained in them to come back to that nesting site. Is that right? Yeah, or at least the area. So usually, if they come to the exact site and the parent is still around or alive, mm-hmm. um, they'll chase them off. To I was going to say, get get Fine. kid, you, you know, get out of the house. You're out of here. Yeah, you know, a little micro region, definitely, they would come back to. So it's, gotcha. well, you know, it, it may not be the same bird, but if, if that's already a great spot, you know, if it's a different bird, they're going to steal it too. Like, I'm sure there's other males or the young juvenile from, you know, past years that's like, hey, you know, dad finally passed away. <laughs> I can take that. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, because I've noticed, honestly, I, I heard it, uh, oh, I don't know, it's, it's been a you know, a few weeks ago, whatever, sometime in, in, in maybe the first, second week of May, and I haven't heard him since. So my assumption is it has uh, decided to move on and go somewhere else, which is a bummer because, again, it serenaded me every day. But I'm also curious, Jason, are you hearing, I know I've talked about it on the program with you before, that I had not heard, I've been in Lincoln since 1983, and it's, of course, my ear wasn't probably always attuned to what I was hearing, but it, but it has been for the most part. What am I hearing? And and uh, the Carolina Wren was one that's like, uh, seems like um, in the last decade or whatever that, because uh, I remember I was always like, what is that? I don't recognize that song. Never heard it before. And, and you were the one that kind of told me, I think I recorded it and sent it to you. And you said, yeah, yeah, Carolina Wren. And mm-hmm. so is are you seeing that where, you know, kind of these birds that were maybe on the edge of Nebraska kind of moving in and then also birds that are kind of on the edge that, tend to like more country settings and I'm thinking of the Baltimore Oriole it seems like I see the Orioles more in the heart of Lincoln that I never saw back say in the 90s is that are you seeing that as well by chance yeah I think there's a there's a little of all of that going on um some both you know good for the birds and maybe some not so much Mm. Um, definitely Baltimore Orioles are a bird that I think have really habituated to urban areas we people like to feed them and mm-hmm. they have figured out that there's free jelly and oranges a lot of places um and especially with you know being a neotropical migrant coming from central america and south america when they first get back boy those males love to gorge on those you know that jelly or the oranges to get some uh, energy and stuff before they um nest um carolina wrens most of the wren species pretty used to humans and we mm. have small cavities and put up bird nests for them that mm. they love mm-hmm. so pretty much going to be okay around people some of the others it's the opposite there are some birds though um both i think with just the way the drought is but like if you look at the climate crisis going on with climate change um we've got some species um, moving into southeastern Nebraska, southern Nebraska, um, that you wouldn't have seen in the area probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, and then a few that we're watching to see if they will move into um, Nebraska. Mm. Um, one of those is scissor tail flycatcher. Mm. Um, 
There have been records of them way down by um, Table Rock and uh, Indian Cave, okay. but not this far. And we've got another one just outside of Lincoln nesting this year, as far as I know, or at least trying to nest. Um, uh, northern mockingbirds moving north. Okay. I think last year we had all kinds of black vultures seen along with the turkey vulture, which is a more mm. Oklahoma, Kansas bird, used ah. to be the, you know, north range. Um, I think we'll see a lot more of that kind of thing over the years as birds are trying to figure out, you know, like if we continue to be warm and dry in the summer instead of, you know, more mild and wet, what does that mean for habitat and what does that mean for those birds? Um, and this is going on all across the country. We're still trying to figure out what we're trying to do from Audubon and a larger idea is figure out what's going to move and those birds that can't, right, if they are habitat specific and that habitat is going to be disappearing, how do we help those, right? Mm. Some of these other birds that are a bit more generalist in what they can eat or the habitat they can use are probably going to be okay if they shift north a little. Um, there's going to be some... Um, I'm thinking of long-billed curlew, right? They like grasslands on plateaus. Um, they can't go up the mountain. They're not going to go any farther higher when you get rocks and things. Ah. So if that habitat disappears, like, what can we do for that? And so, you know, yeah. that all connects back to, like, what we were talking about earlier, which is how do we help that, which is more bird habitat, more native plants in people's yards where there's more habitat that can help some of those birds it's certainly going to help, and it also helps with, you know, air quality for us, temperatures for us in, you know, urban areas. Yeah. You know, and I know you're a big proponent of, of planting native plants for birds, and you had a, a program, was that last year? Was uh, Prairie for Birds, uh, or was that the year before, where you were doing plantings at schools and whatnot and focusing on native yeah. native wildflowers that will benefit birds? And, and folks, so we're not necessarily talking about, of course, thicket shrubs, critical, right? And I never thought I would say choke cherry is rare in Nebraska, but it is. Um, and it used to be everywhere. Wild plum, same thing. It's getting removed more than it's getting planted, that's for sure. And we can all make a difference and say, fine, we need choke cherry in home landscapes. Fine, we need elderberry in home landscapes. We need wild plum in home landscapes. We can't rely just on places like Spring Creek Prairie to help shore up our nation's biodiversity. We're all in this together because last time I checked, we're we're farming road to road, uh, ditch to ditch, right? And wild plums get moved out for you know plowed under for seven more rows, and uh, that's that's the trend, and I don't see it ending anytime soon. So you out there have to make the difference. But I'm curious, Jason, but. That that's thicket shrubs, and of course trees. Man, that's a whole other ball game, a whole critical component as well. But but as far as prairie plants, the the native wildflowers, things like uh, the purple cone flowers, for example, mm-hmm. um, are, are are do you have a a list in your head that you could rattle off to our listeners that says, yeah, plant these because the seeds. I, I'm assuming it's it's mainly just the seeds, or it might be a larval host of a certain butterfly that's you know, laying eggs on there, and, and now that wren could come score that caterpillar and feed its baby with it, and you might be saying, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm doing it to benefit that butterfly. Well, welcome to nature. She's brutal. <laughs> and if you're, if, you're, if you're using it to rear monarchs and stuff or taking the, the caterpillars, it is what it is. It's, uh, you know, celebrate that rather than say, no, no, you're, you can't take my Cecropia moth larvae. Come on, man, give me a break. But is there anything... 
any any plants that in particular you'd say, oh yeah, folks, this has got to be on your your wish list to put uh, that'll help benefit birds. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, you mentioned the cone flowers. The the goldfinches love them. So not only are they good when they're blooming for a lot of the pollinators. I know monarchs and several of the other butterflies will nectar on them when mm. they first start blooming. Mm-hmm. But later in the fall, great seeds for goldfinches and other of the finches. But on top of that, like they're gorgeous through the winter, right? You can get some of the native solitary bees um, laying their eggs in the stem and it looks cool over the snow and then you don't cut it back until it's warm again in the spring. Um, and you've got this great habitat. Um, there's Good several point. others, but what I always like to try to mention is make sure you've got all the levels, right? No matter what your favorite is and if you're bringing in bugs, you're gonna bring in birds, right? So you can look on our Plants for Birds database at Audubon and figure out which you know, plants the birds nest in or which ones they like to eat, right? If it's a catbird or a thrasher, they might like berries or they might like to eat the June bugs. So something that June bugs like. But if you're doing just one of those, it's not kind of filling the whole picture. So I always try to think about like, think that you've got those levels, your understory where you leave some leaves or some ground cover with some plants that are low growing because that's where your like fireflies and your uh, ground beetles and things are, right? A lot of food for birds, but they're also really important in their own to pollinate. Then you get your grasses and forbs that maybe grow, you know, two to three or four feet. Then you've got some bigger grasses if you want them and your shrubs and trees up above. If you don't kind of have at least some of that going, you're kind of missing the picture, right? Mm-hmm. You can have a great tree or you can have a great set of flowers um, and you'll get a little bit of activity, but without the connection of all of those, it kind of, you know, doesn't always, always work, right? I, I, I get calls from people about, well, I've got bird feeders out, but no birds are coming. And then yeah. I'll look at it. I'm like, well, there's no shrubs around <laughs> it. You mowed all the grass below it. It's like they want it to feel natural because they need cover. They need food close. They need water close. So it's really thinking less about what we like right? Even mm-hmm. though that's part of it, right? You can do both. That's the thing that I think some people don't realize, and it's important to do both, which is think of the flower, the flowers or the butterflies or the plant that you you like, and then how do they work together so that I can entice the birds and everything, and they've got great habitat, and I still enjoy, you know, gardening in it, looking at it, sitting and watching it, um, and then, yes, getting used to the whole you may see some things you don't want. I get that a lot, too. It's like, oh, but then the, the hawk came in and ate the doves that were at my feet. I'm like, well, that's going to happen because you've created a great habitat. Yeah, I'd be saying, cool. That was awesome. And, right? oh, what is that fast hawk that'll, uh, is it a, no, not a Cooper's. Uh, what is that? Cooper's, yeah. Yeah, Cooper's, Cooper's okay. Hawks, well, feeders a lot because they love uh, doves, pigeons, right? The kind of slightly bigger, meatier birds like that that will sit there and boy if they see them at feeders they'll uh, just watch until the right time and come shooting through I, I w- had that happen at home once it was a very fleeting thing it's like all of a sudden the birds you know bolted from the feeders like and of course I didn't notice anything and then whew, here comes the hawk basically he didn't didn't get anybody right but he just had to just kind of swoop by and everybody's like alright we're out of here go and didn't get anybody and I'm like going oh that's why they exited stage left and and that's why if you see a bird at a feeder or you know maybe it's your bird bath which is also critical during this drought if you want more birds in um, get a bird bath and if you want to double those birds get moving water in it because they'll hear it and see it and whatnot but but anyway um, 
Yeah, and they always look, look so paranoid, right? They're always moving their head. It's like, yeah, you would too if you, if you knew what was lurking out there. But uh, I just always found that interesting. It's like, all right, take it easy, mellow out, don't use so much energy being paranoid. Well, they got to be paranoid. They always have a predator right around the corner. Yeah, and uh, okay, so so wildflowers, seeds, things like that, good stuff. Oh, Troy, I'm not going to be able to take your call there, kiddo. You're calling right when I was going to tell Jason. We're out of time, so uh, I won't be able to take your call there, buddy. Appreciate the call, though, anyway. You'll maybe call back next week, Troy. We'll, we'll try to get you on the show. Well, Jason, I really appreciate your time and, and uh, getting us all excited about birds. And folks, uh, take time during Nebraska Wildflower Week to get out to Spring Creek Prairie Audubon. Say hi to Jason. Tell him you heard him on that weird show, How's It Growing? And uh, and celebrate National Pollinator Week here coming up on, starting on June 19th. And Jason, always a pleasure to chat with you. And you guys keep up the great work. Yeah, and I, and I see, like, you, you know, you're the senior manager of education. You actually have a couple of other staff. You want to give a shout-out to your education coordinator, maybe, and, uh, and another educator that you have on staff there? Yeah, we've got a great new team. Brady Karg is our new education uh, coordinator and volunteer manager. So if you're looking to volunteer or uh, have any education-type programming, uh, give uh, Brady a call. And we've got our seasonal educator, Megan Patch, on this summer. She's helping with all of our uh, school field trips in the spring and our summer camps this summer. So Excellent, excellent. Well, I, that's just great that you have, because uh, you were trying to do all that stuff on your own, weren't you, in the past? Yeah. They've cloned you. They, <laughs> yeah, they did clone you. Well, well, that's just awesome. And I appreciate all the great work you guys do out there at Spring Creek Prairie Audubon. Keep up the great work, and uh, we'll see you out on the prairie. Will do. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, folks, and you have a good one, too. i got to take off. I'm out of here. I'm out of time. I'm heading to Shadron. Boy. What a jaunt it's going to be. All right, we'll have a great week. I'll, uh, I'll tell you about the trip next week. Uh, do stay tuned. This is KZUM Lincoln, your community radio station.